I never set out to be a pastor. Uh, a lot of people ask this question. They go, oh, I, you know, how'd you know you wanted to be a pastor? I didn't, I didn't know. Um, I grew up in Cincinnati, right outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. And when I was a kid, my dad and I would set the radio in the window and we would go out into the backyard and we would throw baseball. And we would listen to the Cincinnati Reds radio broadcast. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Uh, Marty Brenneman, Hall of Fame uh, radio announcer. And from the time that I was maybe five, six, seven years old, I knew that what I wanted to do with my life was be a sports broadcaster. I knew, like, I already kind of knew early on that I wasn't going to be gifted enough to be, like, an actual baseball player, but I thought if somebody would pay me to talk about baseball at the games, I can do that. Like, I like that. Uh, and so from the earliest age, there are, there are cassette tape recordings, and for those of you that are millennials, cassette tapes are these things we used to have. All right, we'll move on. I'll show you a picture later. Google it. It's fine. Uh, so I, I, there are cassette tape recordings of me uh, calling fake baseball games. And the Reds always won because they were my favorite team. Uh, and so on those recordings, they were 162-0, and 0, and they won the World Series. Um, so from the earliest age, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster and went to college, actually, to pursue a communications degree to be a sports broadcaster and spent my first three years in college working on that. I was actually, I was doing uh, the play-by-play for the, high, for the college football team and for the baseball team, for the basketball team. Uh, and, and actually, by the time I got to my junior year, uh, made a connection with someone in the Cincinnati Reds organization and had the opportunity to actually go and intern for a summer at the Reds organization. And I was over the moon because I thought, this is what I'm supposed to do. And about a month before I was supposed to leave to go work at this internship, uh, I got an email from somebody inside the organization that said the man that I had been working with had been fired and all the things that he was doing were done away with and they were starting over with someone new. And so like that, at 20 years old, the dream that I thought I had for my entire life was pulled out from underneath me. And so I'm a month away from finishing my junior year and I don't have any plans now for the summer. The previous two summers, I had been roofing. Uh, if anybody knows what that's like, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'd been roofing... Uh, in Augusta in July. And it was not exactly what I wanted to do, but I thought, well, I guess we'll go back to, to roofing. And about that time, I had a friend who was in ministry, he was in student ministry in Sumter, South Carolina, and he called me and said, would you be interested in coming and spending 12 weeks here um, being my student ministry intern? And I was like, what does that entail? And he started to tell me, and I was like, you know what? I don't care. Will you pay me and I don't have to roof? And he's like, yes. And I was like, great, I'm in. I don't care what it is. And so when people ask me, how did you get into ministry, I jokingly tell them I didn't want a roof. Um, that's the real spiritual call. But um, over those 12 weeks I spent in Sumter, South Carolina, God did something incredible in my heart. And he'd been doing it for a while. I just wasn't aware of what he was doing. And that's often how it is. Usually I'm the last one to know what God's doing in my life and in my heart. And it was very much the same way there. And after those 12 weeks, I came out of that knowing that the dream that I had for my life was not nearly as good as the dream that God had for my life. A lot of things happened that summer. Uh, I met a girl who is now uh, my wife, uh, who grew up in Sumter, South Carolina, and was attending the church that I was at, and so God blessed me through that. Came out of college, finished my communications degree, was hired three days after um, my uh, graduation to be the middle school pastor at a church. I don't know who puts a 22-year-old in charge of middle schoolers, (laughs) but they did. Um, And luckily, no one was killed in the making of that video. Um, All the way to here. But I remember there was a specific conversation that I had very early on. Right after that summer, I knew that I wanted to go to ministry. My dad is a pastor. 
Um, and part of the reason that I didn't want to be a pastor is because I'd grown up in a pastor's home, not because my dad wasn't faithful and loving, but I'd seen the toll that it took on my father. And so after I was very excited to go and talk to my dad about my call into ministry, and I went and I sat in his office, and I was expecting this kind of exuberant, oh, I can't wait, we're going to be bros in the ministry, and all this kind of stuff. And I remember that my dad looked at me, and, and he was not, he was, he was obviously um, excited that God was doing something in my heart, but, but there, was a, there, was a, there was a soberness as well to his comments. And I said, well, dad, what do you think? And he said to me, I, I want to just tell you two things. And these are, he told me more, but these two things specifically stick out in my mind even today, 10 years later. He said, if you can see yourself doing anything else, go do that. And, and I don't think he meant that the way that I took it. Initially, I was like, what, what do you mean? But I, I think he understood something. He understood that ministry is difficult and that ministry is for those who are called, that, that vocational ministry is for those who are called. And so he said, if you want to step into this, you need to make sure that this is exactly what God wants you to do. And then the second thing that he said to me was pretty simple at the time, but it's profound. And he said, if you're going to be in ministry, he said, if you preach the Bible and you love people, you'll do all right. And that stuck with me even now. And so a call to ministry to me has been the Lord using me and all of my perfections and all of my weaknesses to be a reflection of Jesus in the way that he's called me to be. And then I have imperfectly tried and practiced and pursued that idea to preach his word faithfully and to love you the way that God has loved me. And it was that fatherly advice that really has carried me through some pretty difficult times. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul is finishing up chapter 4, writing to Timothy. And he writes not as uh, a boss to an employee, but Paul is writing to Timothy as a father to a son. Even though Timothy was not his son, Paul says that you are my son in the faith. I feel like they had this father-son relationship. And Paul is writing to Timothy with some significant fatherly advice. Because Paul knows what Timothy is facing. And he knows what he's going to face. And so he writes to him to remind him, to encourage him to continue to be faithful, to continue to be a reflection of Jesus. Because that, that's what we're after, man. Like, listen, God, God created you. God designed you with a purpose, and that purpose is to be a reflection of the creator to the creation. Do you know that? That's why you exist. That's why we live and breathe. That's why Jesus had to come and live a perfect life and die a sinner's death, because in our sin, we have fractured God's good design. We have broken the image of God inside of us. It still resides there, but it's in pieces until Jesus makes us new, and he gives us a purpose and the ability to do what we were created to do, namely reflect God's glory back into creation. And that's what we're trying to do. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. And that's why we listen to the word. And that's why we obey the word because we want to be reflections of God to creation so that others might see and know the God who has redeemed us. And so Paul writes with this in view. He writes this to Timothy to reflect God's glory through his words and through his life. And then he tells him how to do that. 
Because for a lot of you, you get that. You see that. You know that intrinsically. You know what God has called you to do. But the struggle for you this morning is not head knowledge, but it's practical application of that. How does that work out? How do I do that? Like, I get it. I know that God's called me to be a reflection, but I feel like I'm not doing a good job of that, and I don't know how to do it. And Timothy was in much the same situation that you are, and Paul writes him these words. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 11 through 16. You don't own a Bible. We would love to give you one. You'll stop by the connection table on your way out. We have a free gift to you. That is a Bible. Uh, if you are following along on your smartphone or tablet, you can click on Uversion, search live events. You'll see that right there. Practice, progression, and progress is the name of the, uh, practice, persistence, and progress is the name of the sermon there. However you determine to engage with the scriptures this morning, I hope that you would. First Timothy chapter four, starting in verse 11, Paul says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love in faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. David Barton did a great job last week of kind of talking through some of the things that Paul is commanding of Timothy and that he's commanding of the broader church at Ephesus. And Paul reiterates again, teach the things that we've already been through. Teach these things. He's reemphasizing the importance of godly doctrine and godly living. And then in the last part of chapter four, what he does is he gives him three specific things to do And at the end, he tells him how to do them. So that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at these three things that Paul says to Timothy, and then he gives them the actual application of how to do these things. This morning, as we look at this idea of the goal being Christ-likeness, reflecting God's glory back to creation, here's what I want you to understand this morning. Here's what I want you to give. If you don't get anything else out this morning, I want you to see this simple, central truth, this simple equation, that as we're working towards Christ-likeness, practice plus persistence equals progress. Try to make it as simple as possible this morning so that we can remember that. Practice plus persistence equals progress. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 12, the first thing that Paul tells Timothy that he needs to do is he needs to set an example. He says, set an example, Timothy. Now, he says something interesting before he says it. He says, let no one despise you for your Youth. He says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Now, why would he tell Timothy this? Here's why he would tell him this. Usually, uh, when a church calls a pastor, uh, there's usually some kind of team or a committee that goes out in search of the pastor. They usually take resumes or they go and they listen to sermons. And usually that committee comes together and they say, this is the man that we feel like God is leading us to. Let's pursue him. They approach him. He agrees. The church usually makes this decision. Yes, this is the man that we believe God has called to lead us. That's usually the way that works, but that's not the way that it worked in Ephesus. In the church at Ephesus, Paul had started the church. He planted the church in Ephesus, and then he was moving on in his missionary endeavors, and he literally said to the church, Timothy is going to be your pastor. I'm leaving. Timothy is going to be your pastor. 
Now, Timothy, most scholars believe that Timothy was probably a young man in his late 20s, early 30s. Now, if you understand anything about this time in Ephesus, you understand that to be aged, notice how I said that, to be older was a sign of honor, and it meant that you had wisdom. And so as you progressed in age, it was said that you were more wise, that you were fit for more leadership roles. That's why many of the men who were leading at the time were older men. And here's Paul stepping into a culture where older men are in charge saying, this young guy is going to lead the church. And so you can imagine, you can imagine that there were probably some people in Ephesus that were a little bit put out by that. Uh, who? Who? This guy, this, this young guy, this guy's qualified to lead us. And there are probably men in the church who are going, I am far more qualified to lead this than this kid. And so Timothy now steps into this role. We don't even know that he wanted it. We don't even know that he pursued it. He probably didn't send a resume to Paul. Paul just says, Timothy is you. And so here's Timothy now trying to pastor a group of people, many of whom go, you're not even qualified to lead us. You're not old enough. And so the first thing that Paul says to Timothy, he says, no, 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 don't, don't let them use that against you. He says, don't let them look down on you because you're young. God is no respecter of age. He can call you at eight like he did Josiah. He can call you at 18. He can call you at 30. He can call you at 60. And so Paul says, don't, don't worry about that, Timothy. Don't worry about it. Don't let them despise you for your youth. Instead, when they question that, you roll out your degree and you show them how qualified you are. Is that what he says? You show them, Timothy. You show them how qualified you are. Stand up there and preach better and then look at them in the eye and be like, do that, do that. (laughs) That's not what he says to do. See, our natural inclination when our leadership is threatened is to get defensive and to start defending ourselves. No, 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 I am. I am this person. I am qualified to do this. But Paul says, no, 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 don't be defensive. He says, instead, when they challenge you, set an example. He says, when they challenge you, Timothy, and they will, set an example. And he tells them to set an example in two ways. He says, first, I want you to set an example through observable characteristics. The first thing that he says is, I want you to set an example through your speech. I think it's interesting that that's the first thing Paul goes to. He says, set an example for how a godly believer and godly pastor and godly man is to talk. He says, set an example in the things that you say, in the things that you talk about, in the jokes that you tell. He says, Timothy, set an example through the things that you say. Now, this this goes in accordance with what James will tell us in James chapter 3. James says that in much the same way that a giant forest fire is set ablaze by one single spark, so he says that most of the drama in our life is set apart by one of our smallest body parts, and that's our tongue. He says in much the same way, the things that you say get you in more trouble than anything else. Right? Anybody ever gotten in trouble for something you've said? I I do this like weekly, guys. Like it's no joke. And so here, Paul says, no, 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 be careful, Timothy. Set an example of godly speech, not only in what you say, but how you say it. So many times we get into trouble, not for the things that we say, but how we say them. And I heard someone say this a long time ago, and, I, and it stuck with me. And I try to practice this, and I don't do a great job of it, but I'm trying. 
He says the right thing said in the wrong way is the wrong thing. And so Paul's telling Timothy here, listen, set an example for the things that you say, but not only the things that you say, but how you say them. Secondly, he says speech, and then he says conduct. He says, let your speech be an example, but then let your conduct back up the things that you say. Everybody knows the old adage, practice what you preach. So he says, if you're going to say these things and be an example in speech, then you need to be an example in conduct. James talks about this too in James chapter 1. He says, you tell me that you have faith, I show you that I have faith by the way that I live. And so Paul says to Timothy, it's not enough that you know the right things and say the right things, but you actually have to apply and try to live the way that you say that you're living. And so he says that you will set an example for the believers through speech and through conduct. These are both observable characteristics. And listen to me, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, People are listening to you and watching you, whether you know it or not. And oftentimes, their perceptions of who God is and what God desires of them comes from the way that you speak and the way that you live. And so there is a responsibility inside all of us who claim Christ as our Savior, who say yes and amen, I want to be a reflection of God back to creation. There is a responsibility to us to be very guarded and careful about the things that we say and the way that we live. Secondly, Paul tells him not only observable characteristics, but there are invisible characteristics that I want you to be an example of too. Now, these are things that are harder to see. These were things that were going to be personal. So he says to Timothy, people might not even know that this is happening in you, but I want you to set an example in these three ways. I want you to set an example through love, through faith, and through purity. He said, I want you to set an example through love and through faith and through purity. He says, I want you to be an example of God's love for people. And I want you to be an example of faithfulness. You know what faithfulness is or what faith is? I think I've defined it this way before. Faith is believing that God is who he said he is and will do what he's promised to do. And so he tells Timothy, you need to be an example of faithfulness. And then he says of purity. He says you need to be an example of of purity, of purity of thought, of purity of heart, purity of actions. He says in these inobservable or invisible characteristics, as you begin to practice these things and grow in these things, what you're going to see is that your observable characteristics begin to reflect what's going on internally. D.L. Moody, the great preacher, once said, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. And so he tells Timothy, He says, bear down, be an example of love, of faith, of purity. And as you begin to grow in these areas internally, externally, you'll start to hear these things played out in the way that you live and the way that you speak. Uh, Paul would say something very similar to Titus. Uh, In Titus chapter 2, verse 8, we'll start in verse 7. Paul says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And so I love that. I love that. Paul says, Timothy, don't get defensive when you're challenged. Don't get defensive when you're challenged. He says, just set an example. Set an example. Love, faith, purity, speech, and conduct. And when you set the example in those ways, your critics and they won't have anything to say that'll stick. Secondly, 
He tells Timothy to be devoted to the word. He says, be devoted to the word. And he says, be devoted in three ways. He says, one, be devoted in public reading. Two, be devoted in exhortation. And three, be devoted in teaching. And each one of those are pretty important. Now, as we read First Timothy, you, you can look at this and say, how does this apply to me? I'm not a pastor. I'm not called in a full-time vocational ministry. This is a letter from Paul to Timothy, who's pastoring people. I'm not in that position, so First Timothy has no basis or no bearing on my heart or life. Untrue. Here's why. You hear what the first thing Paul tells Timothy to do? He says, be devoted to the public reading of the scripture. Now that's important because in Colossians chapter four, he says something similar to the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter four, verse 16, Paul says this. He says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, but he's writing this letter so that it might be read throughout the church. And the way that this letter was received is not Timothy, the way that we receive a letter where we just open it up and read it in our study and put it away and go, oh, wasn't that nice of Paul to write me a letter? No, 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 no. Timothy reads the letter and then he invites all of the church to his house and he goes, here's what Paul has to say to us. Paul's personal correspondence was meant for public consumption. He says, it doesn't stop with you, Timothy. He says, it begins with you. He says, these things apply to the people in this room. So before, before you stop and check out and go, this is just a letter to pastors. Why can't we read something different that'll be more applicable to me? Paul says, all of these things apply to you as well, Christian, believer, They were meant to be read among the church. And he says, not only are you called to read these things and put them before the brothers, he says, but you're called to exhort them. He says, be devoted to exhortation. Now, exhortation is not a word that we use anymore. It's not a word that's commonly used. The word exhortation comes from two Latin words, which mean thoroughly and encourage So what Paul is telling Timothy here is he says, as you read these things, as you put them before the brothers, thoroughly encourage them to do it. Thoroughly encourage them to do what I'm telling them to do. And we know that Paul is not just making this up. He's not telling this of his own opinion. Paul is the conduit through which the Holy Spirit speaks to the church. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this letter to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, and it's delivered to Timothy, and Timothy gathers the church and reads them together and says, this is the word of the Lord, now do it. And that's what we do every Sunday morning, is we deliver that which was delivered to us, that we as the body of Christ might actually do the things that God has called us to do. Third, he tells Timothy, you've got to teach these things. He says, there's public reading, gather the church together, exhort them to do it. And then he says, teach them, Timothy. It's not enough to just tell them to do it. You've got to teach them how to do it. That's where the hard part comes in. Uh, when I was in college, uh, the, only, the only class that I ever failed my entire academic career was my first semester freshman year uh, at college, and I failed college algebra. And when I say failed, it wasn't like right below the line. It was like crash and burn fail. 
Here's why. Two reasons. Most of them, several reasons, most of them reside within me. Number one, I'm not very good at math, but that's not an excuse. Number two, it was my freshman year at college. I'd never been away from home before, and it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class at 8 a.m., so you tell me how many times I went. Not very often. So I would say that 95% of the blame for that failure relies on me. However, I'm going to give 5% away because that's just the kind of guy I am. There was a professor who's teaching the class, who was obviously very learned in math. It was very apparent that she knew how to do math. However, she didn't know how to teach math. And so I, already coming into this, struggling, struggled even more when I felt like I was seeing concepts worked out on the board and saying, here it is, do it. And I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't really realize that until I took the class again during a summer semester between my sophomore and junior year and had a lady teach the class in four weeks who knew how to teach math and loved math. And it made me, someone who did not love math and did not like to do math, competent in doing math. What was the difference? It wasn't that the first professor didn't know how to do it. She did. She just struggled to communicate that to others. But when I had a teacher who not only knew it, but loved it and knew how to communicate it, then all of a sudden I began to flourish in those things. And so Paul says to Timothy, it's not enough that you just gather people together and tell them what to do. You got to figure out a way to teach them how to do it. And so that's what we do on Sunday morning is we try to find ways to teach you how to put into practice the thing that God called us to do. When he says teaching, here's what I think about when I think about teaching. You can write this definition down. It is the imparting of knowledge in an applicable way. When he calls Timothy to teach, he says it's not enough, Timothy, that you've got your seminary degree and that you understand all the high concepts of theology. He says if you can't make those things practical for the people is they're going to struggle. And so he tells Timothy, be devoted to the word, gather the church around the word, exhort the people to do the things that God called them to do, and then teach them how to do it. Third, he says, use your gift. Use your gift, Timothy. He says, don't neglect the gift that God has given you. He affirms that God has equipped Timothy with the gifts necessary to do the job that he's called him to do. If God calls, God equips, and God provides... And so God has given each of you this morning, I want to make this real personal, if you are sitting here as a believer in Christ, even if you're not a believer yet, if you're just in here this morning, man, and you're just kind of wrestling through what does it look like to be a believer in Christ, or I just got invited here by somebody else, and you're talking a lot of stuff to Christians, I'm glad that you're here this morning. You're getting this kind of sneak peek into what God is calling you to in Christianity. I think far too often people jump into Christianity not having any idea that Jesus calls us to lay down our lives to take up our cross and follow him. And so I'm glad this morning that you're here because when you walk an aisle and when you pray a prayer and when you trust Jesus as your Savior, your whole life changes. And so Paul says, Timothy, God's given you a gift. And I would say to you this morning, in this room, God has given you a gift, an ability, a talent something that he wants you to leverage and use so that he might be seen as glorious. 
that you use your gift in a way that reflects him back to creation. Paul says that this is the way that the church works. He says that you get all of these people who have these different gifts coming together and they unite around the cause of the gospel and they start using their gifts. And in doing that, people on the outside see the multifaceted wisdom and glory and beauty of God. You, this morning, have a part to play in what God is doing at the church at Cane Bay. You do. There's something that God has uniquely gifted you with. Something that he's uniquely gifted you with that he wants you to use for his glory in this church so that our community might see Jesus in this place. Francis Chan once said this, and I thought it was convicting at first, and still convicting. He says, to say that you are useless or ungifted is to say that God has failed. And so this morning, if you're to say, no, pastor, that's, that's not true. I'm not special. I don't have a gift. I don't have an ability that God wants to use. I'm worthless. That's not an indictment of you. That's an indictment of God. God doesn't make mistakes. God didn't make useless people. He has a purpose and a design for your life. Now, God has given you that gift. But here's the thing. It's your responsibility to cultivate it. In Genesis chapter 2, we read that God creates Adam and he puts him in the garden. And he puts him in the garden and he gives him all of creation. He gives this to man. And he says he put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. God gives Adam a gift and then he charges Adam with stewarding it well. With cultivating it. With bringing things out of it. Getting the most out of what God has given to Adam. And in much the same way, God's given you a gift. So the first thing that you've got to do is figure out what that gift is. And then it is your responsibility through the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to put yourself in situations where that gift is cultivated in you. God's given you a gift. We just said, he doesn't make mistakes. He's given you something that he wants you to use for his glory in his church so that he might be seen in this community. What is it? And how are you putting yourself in positions where you can use what God has given you for his glory, your joy, and others' good? That's the question we got to ask. So when we stand on stage... And we say, we want you to volunteer for greeting team. We want you to volunteer in children's ministry. We want you to volunteer, uh, join a missional community. What we are saying is we want you to find an environment where you can use the gift that God has given you. It's not about making sure we got kids room staffed, although we need that. It's about finding those of you, man, that, that love kids, that God's given this gift to nurture and encourage and teach children and put you in a position, man, where you can live out what God has given you. Young guys ask me a lot. Young guys that are called into ministry, they ask me a lot. They're always like, hey, man, I want to be a better preacher. How do I, how do, I do that? Um, I've had the opportunity to travel a lot in the last couple years, like really over the last year, and God's given me the opportunity to speak at some larger events, and a lot of younger guys come up and go, man, I want to do that. How, how, do I, how do I do that? Here's what I say. I say, preach, man. God's given you a call to preach, then you preach. You don't say no to anything at the very beginning. I don't care if it's a backwoods Baptist church with six middle school kids. I don't care. You go and you preach faithfully because the only way you're going to grow as a preacher is if you cultivate that gift. And it might take some time, and it probably will, and you're probably going to suck for the first beginning. I did. It's probably just not going to be good. 
and that's okay. But God's given you a gift. You believe he's given you a gift, and you go and you find ways to cultivate that gift. Some of you, God's given you a gift of hospitality. You know how you exercise that gift? You invite people over. You open up your home. You have people into your home, and you begin to cultivate what it looks like to be a good host. Some of you, God's given the gift of encouragement. You know what you need to do? You need to make it a purpose in your day to find somebody to encourage. Write thank you notes. Take somebody to lunch. Tell somebody you're thinking about them. Send off a nice email. Find ways to grow in those things. God's given you a gift. Don't neglect it. Last thing. Paul tells Timothy these three specific things. He says, listen, Timothy. He says, set an example. Be devoted to the word. Use your gift. And then he tells him how. And so I've talked a lot about the things that you should do. And the last part of this this morning, I just want to tell you how you do them. Verse 15 and 16. Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I've been a pastor now for eight years, eight and a half years. And the most common question I've gotten over those eight years is this. Somebody asks me, how do I grow in Christian maturity? Some form or fashion. How do I grow in Christian maturity? How do I grow in my faith? How how can I begin to progress in my face so that I look more like Jesus. I understand the things that God said and that I should do them, but how do I do them? Does it just happen? Like one night I go to sleep and the next morning I wake up and I'm Billy Graham? Is that how it happens? Those those of you millennials, Billy Graham was a pastor, big deal. Google it, Google it, it's fine. Is that how it happens? Just by osmosis, I sleep on my Bible and all of a sudden it just kind of pours in and figure it out? No, it doesn't just happen. We've talked about this from the stage. Somebody, one of the guys said it a couple weeks ago, nobody drifts towards godliness. It's not a natural inclination in us to drift towards being godly. So, so how does it happen? How do we progress in our faith? And Paul gives us two ways. We practice and we persist. We practice and we persist. And I wish that I could give you a more complex answer, but it's actually pretty simple. We practice and we persist. Now, what does he mean when we say practice? To practice something is to habitually or customarily do something. To practice something is to make a habit of something. It's to make a habit of something. It's to do something enough that it becomes a habit. Um, We practice things every day. We don't even realize we practice them. We practice things that have become habits. We practice them so much. We've done them so much. They become habits in our lives that we don't even realize that we're doing them anymore. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's just take this morning for an example. You, this morning, practiced good hygiene by showering and brushing your teeth. And we are thankful to the Lord for that. <laughs> you didn't even think about it, right? She's like, I need to take a shower. I need to brush my teeth. Practice good hygiene by doing that. You practiced responsibility this morning by getting yourself and your kids dressed and ready and out the door. That takes a responsible hand, amen? You also practice restraint in not killing said kids before they got out the door. Thank you for doing that. That's become a habit now. It's like, I'm just going to restrain myself from striking this kid in my wrath. You've practiced patience in allowing this illustration to go on probably two more than it should have gone on. You see what I'm saying? 
There are things that you've done enough over and over and over and over again that have become a habit so much so that you don't even realize that you're doing it. It's just a natural part of your day. Paul says, why do we think that spiritual development's any different? Why do we think spiritual development's any different? He says, no, no, no. You, you practice these things. You put these things into practice and you do them every day. And you make a habit of doing these things every day. And he says, sooner or later, if you practice enough and you put these things into practice every day, over and over and over and over, suddenly they become this kind of natural part of your day. Now, practice is not glamorous. When you think about practice, we have to think about things that are often unseen by others. The opposite of practice is performance. And a lot of us have been deceived into believing that Christianity is all about performance. It's about how we are perceived by others, how we act around other people, what we say around other people, that it's all about the performance. But Paul doesn't say anything about performance. He talks about practice. In much the same way that we learned about this, this kind of internal, remember he says, set the example in, invisibly, in faith and love and purity, and when you begin to grow in these invisible things, the observable characteristics, speech and conduct will follow in much the same way as you begin to grow in your personal time in the word and your personal prayer before the Lord and your personal boldness and assurance of the faith, you'll start to see those things reflected in your actions. So Paul says, do you want to progress? got to practice, man. You got to start actually doing the things that God has called us to do. I'll give you this example just, just briefly. It's not in my notes, but I think it's applicable here. Um, when I, a long time ago, when I was learning to read the Bible, somebody uh, told me, and it was a Sunday school teacher, and, and they were very well-meaning, and I understand what they mean now, but it really messed me up for a little while. They told me, every time you read the Bible, you should discover something new. Now, what they were trying to tell me was that the Bible is this incredible gift of God to us, and we cannot plumb the depths of that truth. But I was eight, and I thought every time I read the Bible, something new should stick out to me. And so I started reading the Bible as a young child all the way into high school, into college, and when I wouldn't find something new in the Bible, I would get frustrated and I would quit reading the Bible. And I would go, I'm doing it wrong. I'm not seeing anything new. All I'm seeing is this love your neighbor stuff, and I already know that. And it wasn't until I was out of college and actually in ministry that I heard somebody say this. They said, we all go to the Bible for this fresh revelation. Teach me something new. And God is going, why don't you do the things that I've already taught you to do? And I started to think about it and go, how many of the things am I actually putting into practice that I'm reading? And it was eye-opening for me. Eye-opening for me. And so what I started to do was to read the word in a way that I was not seeking fresh revelation, but I wanted to hear from the Lord, and then I wanted to actually put into practice the things that God was telling me to do. And you want to know what happened? Something fascinating happened. As I began to read the word and actually do what it said, God started to teach me new things about himself. And he did it through obedience. He did it through obedience. Practice these things last. Not only we practice, but we persist. Not only do we practice, but we persist in doing these things. To persist means to, con- to continue despite opposition, difficulty, or failure. There's a lot of things that I'm not good at. You want to know why? Because I didn't persist in doing them. Because I didn't persist in doing them. Um, I wish that I could play guitar like my brother. The first time I picked up a guitar, I couldn't play Stairway to Heaven, so I put it down. It was like, it's not for me. 
Stairway to Heaven was it? Right, we'll, we won't do that. <laughs> Often, this is the same way that we approach spiritual disciplines. First time we open our Bible to read the Bible, we open it to Judges, and you're like, I don't have any idea what's going on. The Bible ain't for me. First time we pray, we can't get our mind focused. We go, man, I just, prayer's just not for me. I'm just not going to do it. First time we witness to somebody and they ask us a question we don't know, it's just like, I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. I'm not good at this. Paul tells Timothy, not only do you practice these things, but you persist in doing them. He says, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when there's opposition, he said, if you'll continue to persist in doing the things that God has called you to do, you're going to progress in your faith. There's a story in Luke 18, and I won't read it because we're almost out of time. There's a story in, this faith, in, in, in Luke 18. Jesus tells a parable about a widow. And a widow had been wronged by someone in her community, and she went to a judge, and the judge was known to be corrupt. And the widow went to the judge, seeking the judge to do something about her wrong. And it said that the judge refused to do anything. And Jesus says that every day the widow continued to go back to the judge, asking him to plead her cause. And finally, the judge says, give this woman what she wants so she'll stop bothering me. And Jesus says, If the wicked judge will give to the widow because of her persistence, how much more will your father, who is good and holy and just, how much more does he want to give good gifts to those of you who persist in doing good? And so let me just say this, man. Some of you guys this morning came in here and you're broken and you're hurt and you're in a dry season of your faith. And I don't know why that is, but you're in a dry season. You haven't seen God move in your heart for weeks or maybe months. And you're starting to feel like, man, maybe this is all not worth it. Maybe this is all just something that I was duped into believing. Let me say this to you. And keep going. Keep pressing in. Keep holding on. This widow, she didn't have anything. I think Jesus uses the widow for this reason, because she was helpless. She didn't have anybody to please her cause. All that she had was her persistence. And for some of you this morning, all you've got left is your persistence. And so you persist. And you keep doing the things that God's called you to do. And you keep setting the example. And you keep devoting yourself to the word. You keep using your gift. And whether you know it or not, you're progressing. You're growing in Christ-likeness. You're becoming a better reflection of Jesus to creation. Practice plus persistence equals progress. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that is good and right and true. Thank you that it teaches us about who you are and who we are. And so, God, I pray this morning for the folks in this room that are struggling, that are fighting, that are feel like giving up, and that maybe this whole church thing, maybe this whole Jesus thing isn't for them. God, I pray that this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would persist in doing the things that you've called them to do. 
Not so that we would be seen as perfect, but so that we would be seen as progressing in Christ-likeness. And so God, thank you for this word of encouragement this morning from Paul to Timothy. I pray that this church would grow to be a group of people that are devoted to the word, that are using their gifts in a way that brings glory to you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, through whom all of this is possible. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.